You have a really different theory of the case about how to help Americans and people in your state than a guy like Governor DeSantis or Governor Abbott. It is this kind of lifting up all folks. It is this kind of inclusive, we are better. We are better as a society, as opposed to tear down, tear down, divide, divide, divide. We all want to turn Michigan into a place where we can not just survive like we've been doing, but starting to thrive. Yes, we can file grievances. Yes, we win. And we kick management's ass plenty. And they will do their gas payments. They'll be ordered to cease and desist or not and maybe write an apology, but then what? Is it possible to tax the rich and stop the wars without a revolution in the United States? You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. On this week's show, from Union Talk, the podcast from the American Federation of Teachers, Randy Weingarten talks with Governors Michelle Lujan and J.B. Pritzker about how they've turned election wins into gains for public employees. On America's Workforce Radio, the daily union podcast dedicated to union news and issues, Joey Combs from SEIU Local 517M on a plan to repeal Michigan's right-to-work law. Next, on From A to Arbitration, podcast aims to provide a union rep's in-depth guide to the dispute resolution process, How Do We Break the Cycle? On our last show today, Labor Beat host Gene Lance poses the big question, is it time for a revolution? We've got a bonus track today in honor of the 500,000 workers who struck this week in the UK. On Labor History in 2, we'll hear about the day a half a million African-American and Puerto Rican students in New York City participated in a one-day school boycott. That's all coming up on this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. If you like what you hear, take a moment, subscribe, share the show. It's what we call sonic solidarity. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Welcome to Union Talk. I'm Randy Weingarten. Welcome to another episode of Union Talk. I am really excited about this episode because we have two of the most phenomenal people I know, and they are in public service, and they are going to talk to you together for the next half an hour or so. These guests are the governor of New Mexico and the governor of Illinois, Michelle Lujan Grisham, the governor of New Mexico, and J.B. Pritzker, the governor of Illinois. Before I start, I want to just emphasize the, just this little ditty that we say all the time, elections matter, because they do, and you see that big time in New Mexico and in Illinois. And you see it in terms of education, and you see it in terms of workers' rights. Thank you for inviting me to this podcast uh, and giving uh, my esteemed colleague, J.B. Pritzker, 
uh, and I, an opportunity to really have a robust conversation about public education and making sure that students, I mean, whatever it is that we're doing, students and parents have to be supported in a meaningful way so that families feel like those educational investments are making the impacts uh, that we all desire and that we're uh, uh, reaching every single opportunity. Governor Pritzker, you've done something pretty similar in a very different kind of state with, frankly, very different kinds of politics. Before I took office, my predecessor literally couldn't get a budget passed for two years. So uh, we didn't pay bills. We had a $17 billion bill backlog. We had unpaid bills. He tried to take pensions away from teachers and state workers. Uh, there was just a, there was a, a, an effort to bankrupt Chicago public schools by the governor of the state. So, you know, that's a that's a substantial uh, challenge to to take over from. Uh, and then, you know, we, again, unbalanced budgets uh, and deficits to, to deal with. So when you think about my priorities, which are, you know, for 20 years before I took office, I had been working very hard in the early childhood development arena from quality child care and early childhood education, including preschool, um, and trying to make it a national priority, uh, which I have to say, thank goodness we were successful at doing, uh, but uh, the state of Illinois hadn't made the kinds of investments that were necessary, and I really wanted to make huge advancements, but until you solve for the budget crisis, um, you can't do that. You have a really different theory of the case about how to help Americans and people in your state than a guy like Governor DeSantis or Governor Abbott. It is this kind of lifting up all boats. It is this kind of inclusive, we are better. We are better as a society, as opposed to tear down, tear down, divide, divide, divide. What are both of you thinking right now in terms of this moment that we're in in America? You know, we have a, a set of values that starts with um, lifting up families, making their lives easier, uh, making sure that we're providing a pathway to success for everybody in our states. And uh, and that means, you know, tackling a lot of challenges, there's no doubt. But remember that for a lot of people, I think over too many years, they've felt like government really hasn't done much for them. And, you know, that, that even though, you know, that the experience is, you know, you're We've got, you know, public roads that are available, public schools that are available and so on. It, it feels to many people as if, the, the, you know, what is the purpose of government? It's those values that really make a difference. And you've got a democratic national agenda that is really clear about equality and fairness and justice and engaging and investing in policies that make it easier for families. And then you've got a national Republican agenda that says, if there's, if it's hard for you right now, the best thing that you can do is to make it hard for somebody else. Well, what an outrageous, selfish, divisive platform, which in the end, even if there's a momentary sense by uh, uh, an individual or a voter that, yeah, that's right. You know what? If I can't have it, you can't have it either. Or if you've got it, I'm going to take it from you. 
Uh, I think Americans are in large part, and thank goodness, discarding that angry, uh, divisive, uh, unfair tactic about who we are as Americans. I just really want to thank both of you um, for not only your time, but for your soul and for the willingness to take the slings and arrows that are always thrown at you and to do the work that helps make our country better, lifts up education and healthcare and workers, and makes a difference in the lives of others. Really, really, really thank you for today. Thank you. This was great. Looking forward to seeing you soon. Fantastic. Thanks, Randy. Thank you. And for everyone else, that's the end of our podcast for today. And until next time, take care. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Union Talk. Remember to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast and tune in every other week for a new episode. Thank you. Be safe and be well. Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. Over 500 teachers go on strike in the state of Massachusetts. Showdown coming this week between REI and the NLRB. Today on the show, we check in with the Minnesota Building Trades and the service employees, local 517M in the state of Michigan. Let's go to the state of Michigan right now. And joining us on line number two is Joey Combs. Joey is president of Service Employees International. That would be local 517M which is uh, 7,000 public sector workers all across the state of Michigan. Joey Combs, welcome to America's Workforce. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I know uh, one of the things that uh, you want to get into here is repealing right to work. Now, in the public sector, you had to deal with the Janus decision. Ironically, you were president in 2018. I think that's when the decision came out from the U.S. Supreme Court, and that affected not just Michigan, but public sector workers across the entire country. So that was a battle in itself. Now, what's uh, what's the game plan here? You're going to repeal right to work? Talk to me about that. Yes. Um, repealing right to work is a big priority for SEIU in Michigan and for working people as a whole. And like you said, even though it won't have a direct impact on us public sector workers, we do know it's a necessary step for us to put the powers back in the hands of the workers. Because we all want to turn Michigan into a place where we can not just survive like we've been doing, but starting to thrive. So, Joey, I know uh, Right to Work was passed I'm pretty much in the dark of night, and I, I want to say it was about a decade ago, and it, it certainly surprised a lot of people. And you probably heard the saying, Right to Work for Less. I'm just wondering yeah. if, if you could speak to that, because uh, – you know, the businesses are saying, oh, it's it's great for business. And they, we don't have to deal with unions as much. I mean, unions are still there, let's be honest. But uh, how has it affected, in your opinion, the, the workforce in the state of Michigan? Well, you are right. It was approximately a decade ago in December 
And how right to work has impacted us in Michigan, it's how it impacts everyone who has to deal with right to work or so-called right to work, as you said. We all know that right to work has always been about one thing, corporations stripping our workers of their power so they can enrich themselves at our expense. We all know that these anti-worker laws are rooted in racism, greed, and intended to weaken our union. So what did you do here in the, the last election cycle to uh, make sure that you got the right people in office? Yes. Well, this last election cycle, we were able to actually have a fair election because redistricting was done by um, a redistricting commission and not the politicians. Our workers did work hard knocking doors, um, phone banking, and just turning our membership out and running a lot of get out the vote uh, messages. Oh, that's great that that it happened here. So is where where are we with this in the, in the legislature right now? Has it been introduced? Uh, what kind of support are we looking at right now? I, I, the governor, from what I understand, didn't in her State of the Union address, didn't mention it, which is a bit shocking to me. I know she's pretty pro-union, but pick it up from there. What What's uh, what's the scenario here going forward? Well, repealing right to work, um, our House Democrats have introduced their top six priorities for the state, and right to work is in the top six priorities. And speaking for um, SEIU and the members we represent and our members who are politically involved, we all know when we elect people, we not only have to elect them, but then we have to hold them accountable. So there definitely will be accountability work on this side to make sure the things that they ran on are the things that they actually show up and do for us as the working people. Well, Joey, thanks for coming to the table today to explain what's going on. Good luck to you and your team over there on repealing right to work. We will stay on this issue. I promise you that. Joey Combs, president of SEIU Michigan. That's a local 517M. Website is seiu517m.org. You take care and stay in touch, okay? Thank you. Thanks for listening. And be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com. All right, welcome back to From Aid Arbitration, to the Monday edition of From Aid Arbitration. <laughs> this gentleman messaged me, and and I will get 50, 60 of these a week, okay? He says, hey, Corey, man, that last episode was inspiring. Thank you for sharing that story. I hope it keeps some of our brothers and sisters in the fight. To me, the essential problem is the unfairness of the structure of our contract. Yes, we can file grievances. Yes, we win. And we kick management's ass plenty. And they will do their GATS payments. They'll be ordered to cease and desist or not. And maybe write an apology. But then what? They are still there to do it again. And the cycle continues. It's frustrating and feels like every time you get to the top of the mountain, another peak pops up. Your desk is clear. All grievances settled. And bam. More bullshit from the same asshole. It's ultimately unfair. If I make the same mistake four times, my ass is gone. Maybe we can get it up to six with a good steward and formal A. 
but if I don't fix it, I'm gone. Fired. Done. Management can keep doing the same crap over and over and have no real consequences. Here's my proposal. The NELC needs to bring a bill to Congress. Call it the USPS Management Accountability Act. If we can show just how much money is wasted on repeated violations of the contract by bad management, the number has to be astounding. These assholes like saving money, so here's how you do it. Remove them and send them back to whatever craft they came from. So if a carrier gets four strikes, letter warning, seven-day, 14-day removal, then a 204B gets the same. An EAS, eight strikes, go back to your craft. A Postmaster, 16, go back to your craft. A Poon, 32 and so on. If you don't get, agree, that's fine too. I still love the show and what you do with educating us carriers. Thanks, Corey. I'm with you 100%, my man. I'm with you 100%. And I'm going to say some things tonight that's going to upset some people. All right? I don't like upsetting people, but I'm going to say some things that are going to be upsetting to, to a few. Right. Here's the bottom line, folks. And this is tough to say. And I don't like saying it. But this is the bottom line. We no longer have a Vince Sombrato in our union. That's just the way it is. We no longer have a Vince Sombrato in our union, period. We no longer have that hero, right? We no longer have that person that we can look up to and say, Captain, my captain, we've got you. We're here with you. We're going to fight with you. We don't have that anymore. We had 15% of our membership voted in our last election for president, that ticket. 15%. Why is that? Why is it that so unacceptably low right there? Is it disinterest? Huh? Is it one of those things that you got two tickets and people are like, eh? I would, I would hope not. But why is that 15%, only 15% voted in this last election? Because we don't have that hero. We don't have that, that person that will shake it at the foundation. We don't have it. Vince Sombrato hit the ocean and caused a tsunami, son. Caused a tsunami. He was a hurricane. He was a hurricane. He delivered mail for 20 years. In terrible conditions. Pay was terrible. Working conditions was terrible. Sound familiar? Then him and six other carriers that called themselves the Magnificent Seven. Now you knew they was fixing to tear up some shit. Right? The Magnificent Seven. From branch 36, decided enough was enough for my people. Enough was enough for my people. We're going to make a change. And they went on strike. The President of the United States got involved, called a state of emergency, called in the military, and they couldn't handle it. And Vince Sombrato changed the course of the city letter carrier. And we got collective bargaining because of it. He was our president from 1978 to 2002 and was a damn hellraiser every day he got in, the, in his office. <sighs> I'll talk to y'all next week. Y'all have a fantastic week, okay? 
And uh, I'll see you Sunday. Yeah, I'll do on Sunday. All right. Talk to you then. Bye. This is Gene Lance on the Workers Beat Extra. A lot of young people nowadays, and some old people too, are saying that we need a revolution in the United States. There's even a song about it by the Beatles, You Say You Want a Revolution. So do we really need a revolution or not? It's kind of interesting because in the days of the Soviet Union, people said that a world revolution was going to be necessary and that the Soviet Union was more or less going to help every country that had a socialist revolution or had some kind of a socialist government, and they wouldn't help anybody else. Then they imploded, and then the Chinese today are the leading government that says it's socialist, and they don't call for world revolution at all. In fact, they try to get along with pretty much any country that'll get along with them. So, do we need a revolution? Or do we not need a revolution? Well, we've made a lot of progress in America to begin with. A lot of people say that America has the best government that any country ever had, and maybe that's true. And a lot of people say that America is a total democracy. Now, I would have to disagree with that. We're a democracy more or less, but certainly not a total democracy. There are some areas in America that people really have very little say-so about. There are two of them that come to mind right away. And if those two were resolved, then I would say that we had more or less a complete democracy and that no revolution would be necessary. One of them is the economy. You might think that you're voting for people who are going to represent you on the economy, but think about it. Are you the one that voted to get interest rates raised, for example, right now, even if it costs people their jobs? Are you the one that votes to have layoffs? Are you the one that gets to say whether or not this tax goes up or that one goes down? Not really. You don't get much say-so about the economy. The other area that you get almost no say-so about is foreign affairs. Even when the people are totally against war, they still find themselves going to one war after the other one. This was true in World War I. People were forced to accept that war. People were horsewhipped. People were thrown in jail. People had their civil rights abrogated, taken away from them. And it's been like that ever since. It was the same in the Spanish-American War. It was the same in the Mexican War. President Lincoln, the guy who later on became President Lincoln, opposed that war. And several major philosophers opposed that war. And it's always been like that. We didn't get much of a choice when it came to going to war. And that certainly was true in Vietnam. 
It was very clear for a long time that the people of the United States did not support the war in Vietnam. So on foreign affairs, we have very little democracy. So tax the rich and stop the wars are two slogans that would be great. But are we going to get them? Is it possible for us to get the rich people taxed and to get the wars ended? That brings me back to my original question. Do we need a revolution in the United States? Is it possible to tax the rich and stop the wars without a revolution in the United States? That's what I'm asking you. This is Gene Lance on the Workers Beat Extra. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. During the past year, there have been many stories of students walking out of public schools to protest the practices of community policing. This tactic has deep roots in the civil rights movement. On this day in labor history, the year was 1964, which saw nearly half a million African-American and Puerto Rican students in New York City participating in a one-day school boycott. In addition to nearly half of the public school student population taking to the streets, thousands of demonstrators staged peaceful rallies across the city, gathering at the Board of Education, City Hall, and Governor Nelson Rockefeller's Manhattan office. The purpose of the boycott was to protest segregation and the poor conditions of many schools in black neighborhoods. Baird Rustin, one of the main architects of the 1963 March on Washington, helped local parents and community groups plan the highly successful event. The massive action drew attention from the national media. The boycott's coordinators approached the United Federation of Teachers, the city's teachers' union, for an endorsement of the action. The union, however, declined, although many teachers did individually support the effort. Despite the success of the action, the school board remained unwilling to change its policies. After the 1964 boycotts did not bring about the change that they had hoped, Rustin and many of the local black organizers of the protest went their different ways. Rustin closely aligned himself with the UFT. He hoped to use the union's power to build a labor civil rights coalition to effect change. Other members of the boycott coalition turned to black community power. They advocated for black community control of local schools. These different tactics resulted in lingering tensions between black activists and the teachers' union that would help to shape New York's politics for the decades that followed. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. That's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the more than 100 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to the shows you heard today in the show notes. You'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org. And you can also find them, use the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Patrick Dixon and Mel Smith. I produce the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our website at laborradionetwork.org. 
for Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. This is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show.